0: Welcome back to the MarTech
1: Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Searchmetrics. Searchmetrics sets the standard for innovation in the content and search engine optimization industries. They support businesses who care about understanding both how to use content as a marketing channel and how to improve their organic rankings in Google. If you're an enterprise-level marketer, the Searchmetrics suite of software and services will help you optimize your existing content, help you understand what topics you need to cover next, and how to ensure that your writers produce effective content. There are billions of Google searches happening every day, and Search Metrics gets your stories to the top. Okay, today we're going to finish our conversation centered around the differences between growth marketing and traditional marketing with Graham Hunter from Groundwork Growth. In our last episode, Graham walked us through what he thinks are the differences between growth and traditional marketing, and some of the strategies that he applies to drive results while keeping an eye on the big picture. If you missed the episode, Graham's a really smart guy. It's worth going back and listening to That said, in this, the second part of our conversation with Graham, he's going to walk us through how he allocates his marketing budget between strategic, operational, and experimental channels. He's also going to talk through some of his process for creating marketing experiments. And since he works in recruiting and marketing consulting, he's going to walk us through how to find the right marketing talent. Okay, here is the second part of our interview with Graham Hunter from Groundwork Growth. I think understanding the nature of a marketing channel, whether you're doing brand marketing or growth marketing is very important. And I'll use an example. If you're creating an SEO, a search engine optimization strategy, the nature of those channels, they start small when you have very little content. And the more you add into them, the more they grow and you're essentially building an asset that gets more valuable over time. So when you're looking at your traffic generation with an SEO strategy, it's a small line that's close to zero for a long period of time, and it starts to go up and up and up and up and up. And it rarely ever goes down, barring you getting hit by a Google algorithm change, which is, if you're doing it the right way, relatively infrequent. On the other hand, when you're looking at a paid acquisition channel, it's a dollar in equals $2 out, and that's sort of a steady line as long as you're continuing to spend money So your cost per acquisition will stay the same as opposed to go down over time, but it happens more immediately.
2: That's a great point. And I think that some of the things that I'm helping founders to understand, like line up with that perfectly, one of them would be sort of how I think about budgets. So I tend to separate out my budgets into experimental, operational, and strategic. I generally try and get founders to set or this might be a senior marketer at the company, to set a fixed experimental budget that doesn't change month to month, that is allocated to whatever experiments we're doing. And as soon as an experimental channel, usually more direct response, like dollars in, dollars out, other things that are shorter term, maybe like marketing partnerships or something like that, that as soon as it shows a little promise and we're saying, hey, Now that we've seen that this can potentially work, we should add some performance benchmarks and give this its own budget. You know, we've seen that it's a dollar in and a dollar out and that worked at a few thousand dollars a month. Let's see if it can take five or $10,000 a month and we'll put some performance around that, operationalize that channel and free up the experimental budget to continue moving down the list to see if we can develop new channels. Now that to me is completely separate from a strategic budget And at first, you might not have a strategic budget. You might say, hey, we're just trying to figure out if people are interested in this and we need customers and revenue now. No one's going to sign up in droves the first time you make a blog post, but you can see down the road and you're saying, listen, there's no way. We're trying to revolutionize the blank industry and there's no way that we could do that without helping to educate our customers. For example, at Patreon, Many artists don't feel like they're business people, but running your own independent media company is a big operation from a business standpoint. And we knew at Patreon that if we were going to help creators get paid for the work that they do, that we're going to have to help teach them how to be business people. And that means content. So content was a strategic initiative. It wasn't that the first blog post was supposed to acquire X users or whatever. We just knew that even if these posts acquired no users, that we would still make the content. So because of that, we gave it its own budget to operate. And, you know, sure, there were guideline benchmarks and things like that, but it sort of lived in the strategic category and not in the direct response category. And so that's how I separate out all those things that you kind of brought up, experimental, operational and strategic.
1: What percentage of the spend would you allocate to the three buckets you mentioned?
2: Depends on the company's stage, So if you're starting a company like Dollar Shave Club or Harry's or Trump Club, to a marketer, I feel like it's pretty obvious. Those are businesses that run on the back of paid. So it becomes rather obvious that you're going to run some paid experiments and that things are going to work much more on the experimental and operational side versus the strategic side. They're not writing a bunch of blog posts about how razors work or the best shave that you can blah, blah, blah. But Patreon, on the other hand, and knowing that we had to help creators understand how to run their own independent businesses, like that's a strong strategic imperative almost. So, because of that, the ratios are going to be different. In general, I'd say that experimental budgets come in at a minimum of 5K a month to build them out, run it effectively. The worst thing you can do is to run an experiment and not do it fully and then get the results back and be like, so what does that mean? I guess it just means that we need to do it again because we didn't fail, but we didn't succeed. Just sort of middle of the road. And you want to make it big enough that you're either like, whoa, that didn't work for sure, or there's opportunity here and we should pursue this further. And then after that, I treat it kind of like I'm a financial advisor to the founder. I'm saying, like, hey, I've got a great investment opportunity. For every dollar you give me, I can give you two dollars back. And you tell me how much you want to do that. And there are limits to that, but they say, Oh, okay, that's great to know. And when I find a new quote unquote investment opportunity in terms of marketing, I present that to them too, you know, and I say, Hey, we found a new one. It's not as good as a dollar in two dollars out, but it's much more scalable. Or maybe we can use paid to acquire. And this is a really common thing, I think, using paid to acquire customers that have lower engagement, lower retention, but do convert profitably. So maybe people sign up and then they stay for three months rather than a year like people who come through content or something like that. And then suddenly you have another challenge to take these people who are a little more fickle and maybe use that same content to teach them a little bit and get them to stay longer and stuff like that. So I just see the operational side as not my call, to sort of like, I can make recommendations. Listen, I think we could put in at least 10K a month before we started to see diminishing marginal returns. And that just comes from knowing a channel and where people get stuck. And I think in Facebook, it's like 10, 50 and 100K. We see sort of like performance plateaus as we try and scale those channels and stuff like that's different for everyone and depends on how big your market is and how much people like your product. Right. Talk to
1: me a little bit about experimentation. What is the approach when you're setting up an experiment? You mentioned that the worst thing you could do is stop an experiment when you have some data, but not enough. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi, who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost effective. Talk to me through experimentation process, because that seems to be a big part of what we're calling growth marketing.
2: I think experimentation and in general, scoping is the most important part. I think the first stage of that, which is pretty universal, like if you follow sort of a Brian Balfour or Sean Ellis approach to these types of things, I think that brainstorming evaluation and prioritization is a key activity for the whole team and even maybe some of the founding team to do together, where you're saying, what are all the things that everyone thinks are a great idea, want to try? It could be some referral program in the product, it could be ads. And these could be questions too, like, can I serve ads to people who have YouTube channels inside YouTube? Is there a way to know that they are creators and not just viewers? I don't know. Let's check it out. So, there's that whole process of brainstorming, then evaluation where you say, how much juice do we think is here? How much scalability? How much risk? How much would it cost? And can we scope this thing down to a size where we could see that this would be a good idea or a bad idea in a matter of weeks? So, that scoping phase that comes after this brainstorming, evaluation, prioritization, and then scoping. You just sort of take the things that are at the top of your list and scope them down to say, hey, if we spend $5,000 and we see X number of customers coming in, both from a quantitative and qualitative standpoint, we'll say, oh, we need to see this many customers. And then from the qualitative standpoint, I literally in the early stages of something like paid acquisition, go in and research every single customer that signed up from that channel. If it's B2B, I'm going to their LinkedIn profiles. Sometimes I'm just reaching out to them via email after the fact, just to say, hey, I saw you, blah, 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 just wanted to chat. And if there's a sales team and a B2B company, I'm having them do that just to connect and see just how qualified of a lead are they? How much do they really need this? maybe these are people on free trials. And at Patreon, this might be the completeness of the Patreon page that they set up. Did they include a description and images and have multiple categories of rewards and all these types of things? And if we see all those qualitative things happening when we're looking at all the customers that have come in, we'll say, I feel really good about the potential for this channel, both in terms of a qualitative and quantitative standpoint.
1: One thing that resonates with me that you said is taking a look at the people that are converting and trying to learn as much as you possibly can about them when you're running an experiment. A lot of the times, let's say you're testing out a specific channel, you're testing out Facebook, the ads you're running might not perform at the ROI that you want. But you get your first few customers if you're at an early stage startup and learning who those customers are and what their backgrounds are will help you build targeting profiles that you can apply for your next test. So learning as much about your customers as you go along the way and understanding why a certain type of person converts to me is a big part of experimentation. Even if you're running a channel that doesn't work, you could still learn just as much from channels that aren't working as channels that are.
2: Absolutely. I would also say that I don't think of channels as the only attribute of an experiment. So for example, I might think of paid user acquisition as a way to acquire customers by just throwing our value prop out there, like saying, hey, are you looking for this recruiting software? You know, Check it out. And if that doesn't work, content that's being promoted via sponsored posts on Facebook might be extremely effective. Let's say, for example, that you're targeting engineers. Engineers are a little advertising averse. They're like, that's gross. I don't want to be a part of ads and that whole thing. And so something that's very like value propy, like try this product. They might not like that. But some think piece on the future of work and how you think your company can be a part of it might be really effective. So those to me are like almost two separate quote unquote channels, one that's just direct response ads and one that's more like content marketing amplification So those are completely different experiments, even though they both utilize the same marketing channel.
1: So let's play that example out a little bit. Talk to me about content marketing amplification, because I think that's one of the things that bridges how people think about organic growth, the content creation piece and paid acquisition where they're paying for advertising. What are some of the tools in your bag that you use to distribute content?
2: I've got all sorts of ideas and things that I do in order to get content distribution. In general, it depends on the stage that the company is at, how B2B it is, how B2C it is. I've used my personal network for boosting the profile or number of views for a piece of content. If I think that it's a really great piece of content to get upvotes on some of the content upvoting sites and things like that, If they're a B2C company and they have a strong social presence, that's a great foundation for using Facebook as a potential content amplification thing because you've got all those people who like your page already that you can do lookalikes off of and stuff like that. Personally, I think that display is a cheap, underutilized resource that people can use to do content marketing amplification. In general, for those people, I would choose big sites that match the profile that we're kind of looking for and only serve on those sites, but still only use programmatic tools to do it. So you're not paying premium rates on those sites. And maybe you only get remnant inventory, quote unquote, when they're not selling those premium packages. But if you're a seed startup, promoting your post and you can make that ad look like it belongs a little more of a native way is a great place to start doing paid content amplification.
1: So talk to me, you've made the transition from working specifically in marketing growth user acquisition, and now you're focusing more on recruiting. Tell me a little bit about that side of your business.
2: Well, it's really a type of thing that I didn't plan on doing. But what happened is I wanted to build the agency that I would have wanted to work with coming up through my career especially in terms of PR agencies, there was always this effect where people said, oh, we've got a great new thing around the corner that we want to try with you. And it's just this strategy to kind of get you hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. Don't fire us. Please don't fire us. Please don't fire us. And to me, that's so misaligned with the best intentions of the company. I want to say, yeah, please fire me. I hope it's because I've done a great job and built out some processes and channels that you can then take internally and build core competence around and come back to me when you need help again. So because of that, I started looking for candidates for some of my clients. And then I just started getting random email intros being like, oh, Graham knows some of the best growth and marketing talent, yada, yada. You got to talk to him. And then people started becoming interested only in the recruiting side. And I was like, whoa, okay. Um, Well, I guess if the dogs are eating the dog food, that's great. In general, I think that the whole throw a lead for a candidate over the wall and charge them 30% of annual salary, first of all, that price is outrageous. It's gross. It's disgusting and only really works for sales or engineering when you need entire teams of people. You might open up 10 recs all at once. So filling that volume is really hard. But for marketing, you might open you know, one to three recs at once. And that's even for a bigger company. And so I charge a flat fee, no matter what the role is. And I also get involved and I sit in on first round interviews and see how the candidate that I send in is matching up with their expectations. So
1: tell me about the goals for the company that you're building. It seems like you're split between doing strategic marketing work and finding marketing talent for the companies that you work for. What's the long-term vision for you?
2: So. There's something that happens at smaller companies that's a challenge. You can bring in a senior person, but you gotta find and hire that person and they cost a lot more and maybe they're not as execution focused and so you've gotta have sort of your execution focused person too and your strategic person and maybe your strategic person is doing some execution too. But that costs a lot early on, but that's how people are guaranteeing that they're working on the right thing. The alternative is to just hire that junior person Maybe connect them with one of your advisors and they pitch their idea. Yeah, that sounds great. Go ahead and just start executing and then bringing in that strategic person later on. And I think that just as a paradigm that there's this third option that leverages the strategic vision of startups in Silicon Valley generally that takes process that has worked for a lot of people in the past and brings it in. And, And then you can sort of rely partially on consultants and partially on that junior person, and then wait for that senior hire. So I'd imagine that I want to be that sort of strategic early consultant that then comes in and leaves that director or VP in our wake, who we can tell is aligned with the way that I think about things and have structured things for that company so that when they come in, they say, oh my gosh, you've done six months of my job for me by fleshing out all this experimentation framework and not just like, I don't know what all this is. This is weird. Let's start from square one and sort of give companies a head start by doing that.
1: Makes sense. So talk to me about lessons that you have for somebody that's early on in their career. A lot of the people that listen to this podcast are just starting out with marketing. What advice do you have for them?
2: I think the first piece of advice, and it depends on who you are, but the first piece of advice is just about curiosity and hunger and taking on responsibility and just doing what's ever needed. I mean, this is how I landed almost every single role. Like when I was the quote unquote director of marketing at Hydra's Bottle, guess what? Somebody had to rework our entire inventory management system, get us on fulfillment by Amazon, find an intermediary software that connected to our label printing and shipping and order management system. And I was like, that's me. I got it. That wasn't my job, but taking on responsibility in anything that's required And just being really curious and investigating every channel and reading books and taking night classes. And to me, that's really the way to show that you're the person for the job.
1: Great. Well, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Before I let you go, is there anyone you're looking to meet? Anything that you like to promote? Here's your chance to pub your company.
2: Sure. My website's groundworkgrowth.com. Work with Seed and Series A founders of startups that are looking to build out a growth and marketing roadmap. Always interested in meeting people in all sorts of industries. I do B2B and B2C, especially in the talent industry, meaning people who are working on products in job boards, recruiting, things like that, as well as the arts And would love to talk to even anybody who's trying to make big career moves, senior people who are thinking about career moves. I love just chatting with people about where they're at and giving advice, not trying to make it all about getting new clients and stuff like that. I just want to sort of help people out with my experience and everything will come around.
1: Okay, that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Graham Hunter for joining us. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Graham or about Groundwork Growth, go to groundworkgrowth.com. If you'd like to read the transcript of this podcast, we've published it on our website, martechpod.com. And if you're a subscriber to the Martech podcast, just want to take a second to thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Uh, We feel like we're building a community here. So if you have any questions or comments, or if you want to be a guest on the show, feel free to reach out to us. My email is podcast at benjshap.com. That's B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P.com. Or you can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter. The handle is Ben J. Schapp, LLC. If you haven't subscribed to the MarTech podcast and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we have got some great episodes lined up. We're going to cover things like the technology behind using direct mail, how to get your products into Google search and Amazon, and a little bit about analytics. So uh, if you're into marketing and you want more in your podcast feed, hit that subscribe button.